So we're back in the book of Revelation this morning. We have not proceeded past chapter 1 yet. That's all right. It's just the second week. So just a word of warning to those of you who are more practically minded. Uh, the, the sermon this morning is not going to be particularly practically applicable. I don't know if you've noticed this about the Bible, but not all of it is intended to give you bullet points to apply to your life that fit neatly in a notebook that you can take home and apply. Sometimes, like if you've read the book Psalms, for example, there's some practical stuff in there, but most of it is designed to just do one thing, which is to make you worship God. And that's it. And that's my goal this morning, is to bring you along with me, because I've been sitting in this for like a year and a half, that you will behold, see, consider, look at Jesus in a new way, in a deeper way, that will cause you, where, where the only right, uh, obvious response is not to intellectually go, okay, let me make three points that I can practice tomorrow. Instead, just have your heart kind of, metaphorically speaking, explode, because it can't contain all that he is and just for you to worship. And then we're actually going to worship together, all right? Um, but we don't have to wait for music to worship, right? You can just start bubbling out of your heart. That's my goal, all right? Some of you are happy in that space. Others of you are not. You want, like, give me some points, some bullet points, that, and that's not where it's going to be this morning, all right? And I don't want you to obsess about that. I want you just to open your heart to Jesus, all right? So that's where we're going. So let's start with Revelation 1. We read this last week. I am picking up exactly where I left off last week. And by the way, if you missed last week, please go listen to it. It will help you a lot as we go through, okay? Here's what it says. Revelation 1, 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Okay, so these verses serve as a really nice example of what I taught you last week, okay? which is that, one, this is symbolic. It's not just about those seven churches. If that's true, then we can just not read it because we're not in one of those seven churches, all right? Instead, this is, this is the entire known church at the time, okay? And so we can say this applies to us because we are a part of the church, the universal capital C Catholic, lowercase c Catholic church, right? You with me? That's every believer who has ever lived across all of time in the past, present, and future, that is the big capital C church. The people we're going to be with in heaven, all right? That's the church. As this is sent to them, okay? That includes us. John is the author, and he's receiving this revelation from Jesus. So I am taking that part literally, okay? John actually had these visions. Jesus actually gave it to him and threw him to us, all right? We'll see this number seven, he says, the seven churches over and over again throughout the book of Revelation. I'll probably touch on this some as we go along. Um, that number seven you'll see over and over again to the point where you'll just be like, oh, God, get, get off the number seven already, right? It just means throughout Scripture, it just means complete, whole, uh, finished, total. There's nothing left, nothing lacking. It's finished, okay? That's what that seven represents, all right? Okay, so this is an, an, an easy idea to understand here, this idea of these churches representing all the church, but this principle of how we interpret prophetic symbolism will help us much more later on in the more difficult passages, including the one this morning. Okay, we're going to see a description of Jesus, and it's very detailed. This is not literally how Jesus looks. Okay, if you were to draw a painting of this, it would be really weird and Unflattering. One of, one of the things you'll see is there's a sword coming out of his mouth. That's impractical when you're trying to talk to someone. Okay? It, but it means something. 
All right, it means something. It's supposed to, and so it tells us something not about how Jesus looks, but about his character and his nature and what he's like, okay? And when you start to see that, the whole thing actually gets bigger than just trying to say, what does Jesus look like so I can draw it in a picture, right? It becomes about what he's like, and that's actually much deeper, okay? And, and so that's kind of, that's how you interpret this passage, okay? If you're weirded out by the sword in his mouth and the flaming eyes and all of that, this is, this is what he's like, and we're going to dive into that, okay? In order to get that in Revelation, we got to start in Daniel, okay? You're like, wait a minute, I thought this was a series on Revelation. It is, but you can't talk about Revelation without also talking about Daniel, all right? So we're going to over and over again be referencing back to Daniel, okay? So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 7. Starting in verse 13, just two verses, 13 and 14. We could do a lot more, but I'm going to go easy on you. 13 and 14. Here's what it says. This is Daniel seeing a vision. It's going to sound like Revelation, but it's not. It's Daniel. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in Daniel, that name, Ancient of Days, if you've never seen that before, that's just talking about God the Father, okay? Picture him like... It's almost like some of the cartoons you've seen, the description of the Ancient of Days. It's white hair, white like snow. He's old, meaning he's wise, not decrepit, right? God doesn't have an age. We know that, but it's a way of saying he's wise and should be respected and honored. Okay, that's the Ancient of Days. This is the way Daniel describes him, all right? So you have this picture of, of this figure, this this man, he's one like a son of man, which is just a way of saying he's human. Now that word we're going to explore in just a second, son of man. But here in Daniel, it's just like, he, he, I, I see this, this ancient of days, this fatherly, powerful, sovereign, kingly judge figure. And then this other guy comes, is presented to him. And what does this ancient of days do? He bestows upon him all of his authority as the king and ruler of the universe, he gives it to this man and he says, you now have a kingdom and you rule over it absolutely. You are the king of a kingdom that I am giving you. I'm giving you all my power, all of my sovereignty. I'm bestowing it on you. Now, who does that sound like? Jesus, right? But you're like, I don't believe you. I'll prove it. This designation, son of man, that we just saw, in its most de basic definition, definition just means human, right? Makes sense, son of man. So a man is presented to God, and God gives him this rule and authority. He says you're going to rule over every tribe, nation, and tongue. And of course, this is Jesus. We know this because the title that Jesus used most to refer to himself was the son of man. Not a son of man. He constantly, in fact, is the main title Jesus refers to himself as in the New Testament over and over and over again. I am the son of man, the son of man. But anytime he refers to himself, he says the son of man, right? Perhaps the most striking example, there's lots. I thought about just hammering you with lots of them, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. It's the most striking example, I think, is in Matthew 26, okay? And this is when Jesus is being interrogated. Jesus has been taken captured by the Romans, brought before the, 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 tri, the, you know, the, the, the examiners, the, the high priests, right, under the control of the Roman army, but interrogated by the high priest at first. And they're asking him questions, and they're trying to dig out the blasphemy. They're trying to expose Jesus as a blasphemer, because he's been walking around claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be God. He is Forgiving people's sins. They have a problem with that, just like you and I would have a problem with that if I started going around saying, I forgive all your sins. 
and claiming to be the Messiah. All right? Jesus was making the same claim. The difference was he actually was and is the Messiah. Right? So they're having this thing. And if he's a blasphemer, they're going to kill him. That's the penalty. Okay? So here's the interrogation. Matthew 26, verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days, which Jesus did say. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's finally asking the right question. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Why are they so upset? Why does the high priest tear his robes, which was an action reserved only for the worst, most wicked thing or the worst and deepest mourning. He tore his cloak, representing his authority as the high priest. He tore it and wailed. Why was he so upset? Because Jesus very, very clearly was saying I am the one Daniel saw in his vision that you are all waiting for. Everybody in that room knew that verse. Everybody in that room knew what Daniel saw, and they were praying and waiting for God to send that son of man on the clouds. And here Jesus says, I'm that guy. That's why they're so upset. Jesus claimed to be not a son of man, but the Son of Man. Jesus has done nothing short of claiming to be the sovereign ruler of the kingdom of God with all authority over every tribe, nation, and tongue. The audacity of that statement for someone to say that in chains before the Roman guards to the people who are about to kill him. I'm the ruler of the universe. I'm your king, I'm your king, I'm your king, I'm your king, I'm everybody's king in chains. And that's what Jesus said. It's astounding. Please don't make the mistake of taking Jesus as anything other than the Son of Man. You don't have that option to just say, well, he was just a great teacher. No, he wasn't. If he's not this son of man, he was a terrible teacher. If he's, li- he's either lying, right, and just trying to trick everybody, is his last-ditch effort to get out of getting killed, maybe they'll believe me if I claim to be the Messiah. I don't think we should follow that guy if he's a liar. Or he's nuts. What a crazy idea. There's a lot of crazy people that have claimed to be the Messiah. Go on YouTube. It's insane. It's great Sunday afternoon entertainment. Lots of crazy people. And only a crazy person would follow that crazy person. So he's either a liar or he's crazy. We shouldn't follow him. Or he's actually the Messiah. Don't take him any other way. Don't do it. It's a mistake. All right. So the Son of Man returns. Let's go back to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. So we have Daniel, several hundred years before Jesus, 
seeing this vision of a son of man coming on the clouds. Then we have Jesus coming and saying, I'm the son of man, I'm that guy. Then he dies, which was confusing for everybody. But then he raises three days later. Oh, he is the son of man, right? Then he ascends to heaven on the clouds, not surprisingly. And then we have Revelation 1. We have John on the Isle of Patmos seeing this. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll talk about that in a second. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. So John, who was Jesus' best friend, he was the closest one. He's the one that would lay next to him at the table with his head on, his, on Jesus' chest, having private conversations with Jesus. He knew Jesus better than anybody. But in his vision, he sees Jesus, recognizes him for who he is, but oh, he looks a little different. He was one as the Son of Man, quoting Daniel. He's quoting Daniel 7. John was closest to Jesus, yet when he saw Jesus, he saw, recognized that he was not just his buddy, he was, the, he was the Messiah, the risen Messiah that he had seen ascend to heaven. What is Jesus doing here? He's walking in and out between seven golden lampstands. Those lampstands represent the seven churches we just read about in the verse right before about the seven churches, which we can say represent the entire church, right? In the Holy of Holies, interestingly enough, the lampstands were right in the Holy of Holies, not seven, just one, when it's one of the few objects allowed in there, and it was a solid gold lampstand, menorah, solid gold, heavy, handcrafted, polished, and beautiful. It remained continuously lit because it represented the presence of God, which provided all the light for everyone to see. All right, it was a symbol in the Holy of Holies of the presence of God residing in that room. And the chief priests would go in and tend to that candle or the candles on the menorah, trim them, keep them lit 24-7, 365. You don't want that candle to go out because of what it represents, right? It represents the presence of God. If the candle goes out, it is as if to say, God has left the building. And we don't want that, so we keep the candle lit, okay? It was a picture because that's what we need. We need, we can't see God, right? I can't, I don't know about you, but I've never seen him. And if you're here and you've seen him, you should be dead, right? So what God does is he gives them a picture, a symbol, a visible picture to represent his presence. And he says, keep this light lit all the time. It shows you that I'm present. It reminds you that I'm here, even though you can't see me. And it reminds you of the idea that God is the light. He's the source of our revelation and our ability to see, okay? Here in John's vision, he sees seven of those lampstands, each one representing a church, representing the whole church, okay? And what is Jesus doing? He's walking in and out of those lampstands, doing two things. He's doing the job of a chief priest. He's tending to the lamps. But he's also a judge, who's overseeing the lamps. And you'll see that when he starts talking about the individual churches. We're not going to do that this morning. We'll do that over the next few weeks, okay? Because what Jesus does is he has some nice things to say to those churches, and he has some rebukes for those churches. He's dressed like a chief priest, walking in and out of these lampstands in his kingly role and in a priestly role, Okay? So remember last week, 2 Corinthians 3.18, I'll read it again for you. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this is how we're changed. Your greatest need, your greatest need is not to have more money or a smarter brain or better friends or a better spouse, or improved children, or children at all, or no children. Your greatest need is to behold Jesus. It is the thing that will transform you. 
There's something about us where we become what we look at the most. The thing that you behold, and I hope you understand when I say behold, I don't just mean look at like physically. It's, it's, it's a heart thing. Like what you're enraptured by, what you're focused on, what your desires are pointed at the most is what you become like. We, this is a great strength and weakness of parenting, isn't it? As your kids behold you their whole life up until whatever that time is when they start rolling their eyes. <laughs> Just, you know, 13, I don't know when that age is, but then they kind of start beholding other things and it gets a little scary. But in that time when they're younger, they just look at you all the time and they become like you in good ways and in bad ways, right? This is how we are designed and what we behold, we become like. And that's what Paul is saying there is that we are being transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord. This is your greatest need. I know it doesn't feel like it sometimes. I know it feels like your greatest needs are other things. But that is not the truth. Your circumstances lie to you. Did you know that? Your circumstances are big, fat liars. And they're always saying, oh, your problem is this. Just constantly misdiagnosing your problems. Oh, your problem is you're just in the wrong career. Yeah, you, you might go from the wrong career to a less wrong career but you're still going to have problems. Your problems will follow you. Your problem is not the church you're in. Right? If you're coming from another church thinking that church is your problem, you're landing here, just give it a while. You're going to discover maybe different problems, but just as bad. This is how it is. Your, your greatest need is not any of those things. It's the need to see and behold, to look at Jesus. Okay, so Revelation 1, 12 to 20. Okay, some of these verses we've already read. I want to put them all together. Okay. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this might be, I, I debate between this and one that's later in Revelation, might be the most glorious description of Jesus you'll ever see. It is visual, isn't it? This is the, one of the things about the book of Revelation is, is it constantly asks you to imagine this, to put yourself in the place of John. It's okay. Just put yourself right there in his shoes because you're meant to do that, right? He's taking this. He's writing it down, and he's saying, look what I saw. See what I saw. Can you see it, right? That's what he's trying to get you to do. I think this is one of the main reasons why God spoke to him in this way. It's one of my biggest questions. Like, why all the symbolism? Why not just say the word, say the thing? I think this is one of the reasons why. It's just a theory. Is that he wants us to see it. He wants to, our imagination to get filled up with him. And not with all this other stuff. You use your imagination all the time to do wicked things. Don't raise your hands. 
You imagine horrible things happening in the future. You imagine horrible things happening to your children and your spouse. And you imagine your boss being angry with you all the time. You imagine all sorts of things. And God is saying, look, imagine this. Set your eyes on this. Set your heart on this. Picture it. What would it be like if you were John? I mean, he falls on his face like he's dead. This poof. It's too much. It's just too much. His whole, his whole body and his mind and spirit and soul just overload, just short circuit. It's like trying to put too much power through a little thing that can't contain it. I'm not an electrical engineer, but it just goes pop. Can't do it. Gone. The whole thing is fried. The system is fried. I'm out. That's how intense this was. So don't dismantle the imagery. I mentioned this last week by overanalyzing it, okay? I'm going to talk a little bit about what each thing means. But don't let the, what John saw in its totality get lost on you, okay? In a minute, I'm going to ask you to imagine it, and we're going to go through it together, okay? I think it tells us what, that Christ is the Ancient of Days, He's wise like a judge. He sees all things missing. He misses nothing, okay? He misses nothing at all. His eyes are flaming fire. Imagine him looking at you. What does that mean? He can see through everything. He, he, he can see all of it. It's truth. He, he, he can't be deceived. He doesn't miss anything. You are completely exposed. He can't hide anything. That enough would make me pass out on the floor. That when those flaming eyes look at you and they see through you and none of your defenses are any match at all for him, you have no way to resist him seeing every nook and cranny of your mind and heart. He sees all of it, unblinking, staring right down into the depths of who you are. You're laid bare. You have never felt vulnerability like that. And it's what he looks at you with all the time. He is morally pure and perfect in every way. You don't know anybody like this or anything like this. Something that is 100% unadulterated, pure, morally perfect, no wrong motive, no shifting faithfulness, always perfect, always faithful, never makes a mistake, never does one thing but thinks another, never feels one way and says something different, always morally pure and perfect, unwavering, unshifting, steadfast, and true. Everything in your life has mixture in it. Your mind, your actions, your faithfulness, your friends, even the most faithful, wonderful person that you know, even Gail Davis, <laughs> has some, somewhere, I, I hesitate to say it out loud, but somewhere there's mixture. There must be. We may never find it, but it's there. Never I'll never know. You don't, you don't know anything like this. Everything that you own has problems. Everything. You ever look at reviews of things you're thinking about buying? There's always some guy who's like, it's the worst. There's always that guy, ah, oh, he's got his pitchfork out. and This new, you know, iPhone 34S. It's amazing. It goes to space. <laughs> but it's just like the 30, 30th of a centimeter too wide, and it's just lame. I hate it. It's stupid. Everything you have has a problem, doesn't it? Jesus, there is no mixture. He is morally, ethically perfect in every single way. He is going to be eternally fascinating 
to look at him and see no imperfection, to never, never, it's perfect honesty, perfect love, perfect everything. That's Jesus. There's no compromise in him. Jesus never meets anybody halfway. He says, I'm it. There's no me doing, being less than me would be a disservice not just to my holiness, but to the universe. He doesn't say, look, you come this far and I'll compromise a little farther. No, he says, I'm the king. Bow the knee to me or nobody. That's Jesus. He never compromises. He never meets you halfway. He says, I'll come all the way to you and lift you up out of the dirt, but in exchange, you're going to have to serve me and let me be your Lord completely, 100% forever. That's Jesus. There's no debating. I love the fact that atheists want to put Jesus, as, as C.S. Lewis said, put God, in the dock, put God on trial. A dock is just a British word for trial on the witness stand. Defend yourself. How come you let this happen? How come you let that happen? He never debates. He just says, tell you what, I'll weep with you. I'll sit with you in your, and I'll mourn with you. But I won't repent. I won't apologize. And I won't defend myself. I'll love you and I'll be with you. But I'm the king. And I'm perfect. I'm morally perfect. I've never made a mistake ever. And I've never treated anyone unfairly or unjustly. Everything this Jesus has ever done, all of his judgments are true and right. And he has nothing to apologize to us creatures for, ever. That's the Jesus we see pictured here. We don't see him standing on trial by the chief priest. Even when he was alive, he didn't apologize. He didn't say, look, guys, I think we, we've got started off on the wrong foot. <laughs> what does he do when he's asked the question, are you the Messiah or not? He, he says the most offensive thing, he puts it in the most offensive way possible. He says, tell you what, I'm the son of man. And you will see me seated at the right hand of the Father, the, the right hand of the power, the Father himself, the Ancient of Days. He's the one who's given me this authority. And you can kill me, but all you're going to do is inaugurate my kingdom. There's no apology. If you're waiting for one, you're going to wait forever. He won't give it. He'll love you. He'll weep with you. He'll comfort you. He'll pull you along. He'll suffer alongside you, but he will not because he's never done anything wrong. He rules over everything. Oh, I love this. The sword coming out of his mouth. He speaks with absolute, unquestionable, and irresistible authority. That's what that means. Cuts through everything. When Jesus speaks, it's, he says it's like the roaring of many waters. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I imagine it where the ground kind of shakes, and there's that noise. It's not just, it's hard to dis discern where it's coming from because it's kind of coming up out of the ground. This rumbling sound, this roaring sound where you can't hear anything else. You're having to raise your voice to talk to somebody right next to you. It's so deafening, and you are so small, and you know if you stick a toe in that water, it's going to suck you right out. You are powerless. Only a fool would step out into that water and say, stop, let's have a debate. I disagree with the direction of this river. If we could just hold on for a minute, perhaps we can come to an understanding. No, that would be foolish, right? This is the voice of Jesus cutting through with, with no effort every other argument with absolute authority. He rules over everything, but gives special oversight to the church, meaning he, over, he has a special care for the church. He holds the church in his hands intimately and with absolute control. He holds those seven stars in his hand. Every church, 
There's an interesting thing there. He says that there seems to be an angel over every church, which is kind of cool. I think that's really fascinating. It'll be fun to meet ours one day. I don't know if I want it to be tomorrow. I think it'd be a little easier after I'm dead to meet that angel, but we'll see, right? That's a cool thought. But Jesus holds the entire church in his hand, doing with her what he wants, overseeing her, caring for her. To me, it's the most, it's this strikingly intimate part of this whole picture. Everything else is intense and holy and scary and fall on your face as though dead kind of stuff. The sword and the flaming eyes and the hair and everything. But then you look at his hand and what's closest in his hand is the church, his bride. You should not worry about the future of the church. This is one of the themes of Revelation, in my opinion, is that the kingdom of God is always increasing and expanding because it's in his hand. And all this hand-wringing these days about the church shrinking, there's no such thing. There has never been a time in all of history, including the Dark Ages, when historians like to say the church was decreasing. The kingdom of God has never decreased, ever. It's gone through seasons of being cleansed, where Jesus comes like he does here and says, Hey, get your act together. I'm going to snuff out this candle. (laughs) Better get your act together. There's seasons like that, but the kingdom has never shrunk. It's because it's in his hand. This Jesus' hand. This Jesus doesn't let go of anything, and he doesn't fail at anything. So upon seeing Jesus like this, John, the best friend of Jesus, does the only thing I think any of us would do is he falls to his feet in absolute terror. We need to sit in that for a minute. Now, Jesus comes and puts his hand on our shoulder. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, put yourself in John's shoes. You've always known Jesus as this friend. You know, the, the guy you ate dinner with. The guy you spent all that time with, you had conversations, you shared your heart with, you were physically close. I mean, he, John had touched him, laid his head on his shoulder. He knew what Jesus smelled like when it was hot outside and Jesus was tired. He knew what Jesus looked like when he ate. It's a fun thought. He knew Jesus as a man, right? It's not that he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but his experience of Jesus was very personal and close and physical. And now here he is confronted with the same Jesus, recognizable as his friend Jesus. Oh, but it's different this time. And he is absolutely terrified. He is so terrified that he falls on his feet out on his face. Let's read it again, verse 17 to 19. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. I just stopped there for a second. This, this, as I'm just trying to imagine this, sitting in my chair, just with my eyes closed. Let's just do that, all right? If this bothers you, it's fine. You don't have to do it. Okay, picture Jesus like with the flaming eyes and the white hair, sword coming out of a scary sharp sword coming out of his mouth. His feet are burnished bronze. Scariest sight you've ever seen in your life. And now he's moving towards you. You are on your face as though dead, and he is moving. This guy, this scary guy, is coming toward he's closer. Stay over there, I'm scared. But he's moving closer and closer and closer. Your heart rate is flapping out of control, freaked out. You're not looking at him, but you can hear him. You can feel him. This perfect holiness, this intent, the most powerful thing in the universe, and he's coming closer and closer and closer. And what do you think is going to happen? You're dead. You're toast. And then what do you feel? You feel a hand on your shoulder, a familiar hand, because this is the hand of Jesus. 
And what he says is fear not. And that voice like the rushing of many waters, that thundering, shaking voice that you feel as much as you can hear it, what he says to you is fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So this all-powerful, scary, terrifying king, the Son of Man, what he uses his power to do, among other things, is he loses his power to put his hand on your shoulder and say, fear not. Look up, right? Look at me. I don't want to. You're scary. Look at me. I'm on your side. I'm not against you. I'm with you. That's amazing. So suddenly the fear, which you still feel, this fear, this is a picture, I think, of real, the real fear of God, which is a fear that doesn't drive you to run away and hide like Adam did in the garden, but instead, it drives you to go to your knees at his feet, right? That's the fear of God. It is terror. Like, if you see this, you're going to be terrified. But it's the kind of terror and fear that drives you to your knees to say, Oh, my Lord, woe is me. Like Isaiah, when he saw his vision of the temple, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm exposed. But this Jesus comes and he says, Fear not. So is there a problem that you have? Oh boy, we're going to get practical now. Is there a problem that you have that can match him? It's not. Is there something you're afraid of more than that? Because that is idol worship. Fear is a kind of worship, isn't it? This kind of fear. It's one of the ways we worship God, what you're afraid of, you're worshiping. And so when this Jesus steps into the room, he's the only thing worth fearing. (laughs) And in so doing, in fearing him like this, all the other stuff just sort of melts down to being insignificant, doesn't it? Do you think John in this moment is worried about when he's going to get off the Isle of Patmos? Hey, look, I just have a quick request. While we're here, I'm kind of stuck on this island, and they put me here because of you, so it's kind of, it kind of relates. Do you think you could just get me? When, when, am I, when am I getting off the island? There's none of that. He is on his face before Jesus with his hand on his shoulder, and he's talking to me. And what he's saying is, hey, stop being afraid. You don't need to be afraid of me. We're, you're in me, Right? So what do you imagine his disposition is towards you in this moment? Is he angry at you? Will he consume you? After all, he doesn't, doesn't he see all your sin? Of course he does. Haven't you betrayed him at least once? I have. Maybe a thousand times. A hundred thousand times over you've betrayed him. In that moment with him looking at you with those flaming eyes, you know you aren't worthy to be found in his presence. You know you don't belong there. It's too much. It's either going to kill you or he's going to see. He's seeing me through and through. I don't belong here. Yet instead, a strong hand tells you, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. That's Jesus. So which Jesus do you prefer? In your imagination, have you left Jesus on the cross? Suffering. He did go to the cross. Ed was absolutely right. It's a perfect setup. But you don't leave him there. If you leave him there, you have a broken Jesus. A weak, dying Jesus. 
Jesus did more than die. He then rose in victory, right, three days later. This is, the Jesus. This is Jesus now. This picture of the, the, the hair and the eyes and the, the sword and the voice and the feet and the whole thing. This is him right now. This is the one we're worshiping right now. We're not waiting for him one day to become this. He is this now. And so which Jesus do you prefer? And your conception of him and your imagination is he still broken, persecuted, and capable of dying. And we can't die anymore. Does the Jesus of your imagination only want to, quote-unquote, save you but not be your Lord? Come in and fix your problems, tinker in your life, make some improvements, give you some good wisdom about how to live your life, come alongside you and what you're doing. Jesus, I got a plan. Will you come bless it? I know there's a few idols, but it'd be nice if you just kind of prop them up for me. Feed my idols a little bit. Come along in my life. Do my thing with me. Jesus is my Savior. I like that idea. But what about as your Lord? Which do you prefer? Or maybe you're the opposite. Have you taken the cross away from Jesus in your imagination? You like kind of, you like the boss Jesus, but you don't like the near Jesus with his hand on your shoulder. Perhaps in your conception of him, he is full of flame and thunder, but does not extend his hand to your shoulder. He's angry at you. He's disappointed in you. And you're just hoping he doesn't look at you too long because you're such an epic failure. You don't want him to see. Perhaps he has mercy and merely tolerates you because that's as far as his grace extends, but he will not come to you and put his hand on your shoulder and say, fear not. Do you imagine him as a Lord that doesn't want to save? Both of these conceptions of Christ are anemic. Because the real thing symbolized right here in Revelation 1 is a God who cannot be competed with. He is far more powerful than any problem you may have, real or imagined. Your past, present, and future are secure because all of it is in his hand, including you. There's no walking away from that. If you're in his hand, that's it. This Jesus doesn't drop things. <laughs> so the Son of Man has come, and he's coming again. This Jesus is coming again, and it will be a great, as they say, a great and terrible day. For those who are in Christ, it will be the greatest day. You will see Jesus in his unfiltered form unfiltered by your imagination and your conceptions and your experiences and your the way you'd like him to be he is unfiltered and he is as he is and you can't deny any part of him anymore and we will fall on our faces and we will worship him and we will weep and we will be terrified and he will say hey church fear not I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the living one, eternally up from the dead, right? That's what he will say to us. But for those of us who are not in Christ, there will be nothing but terror. There will be no comfort. It will be a great and terrible day. If you are not his, then you will receive no such comfort. So don't make the mistake of mistaking Jesus for anything that he is not claiming to be. This is our motivation for mission, by the way. Ed's group in their apartment and every group, this is your motivation. You want people to see Jesus like this. He's, he's not just some dude who walked around in sandals and said sweet things and hugged a lot of people and just said nice things and wanted everybody just to love each other and get along and gave us some good moral principles in the Beatitudes. You know, the point of the Beatitudes is to say, you can't do this. I am so holy that I expect you to have perfect, pure thoughts all the time. And those of you who think you're doing great just because you haven't committed adultery, I'm sorry, but you failed. Jesus didn't walk around just saying nice things. This is Jesus. And he is absolute. And you cannot resist him. 
So all we can do at this point, I think, is to worship. So I'd like to pray, and maybe the worship team could come up and get ready. I'm just going to pray. Why don't we stand up? I really just want to pray for one thing, which is that whatever, as to use Paul's language, whatever veil is in front of our face that's obscuring our ability to see the glory of Christ, that that would be taken away. That the Holy Spirit, this is the job, one of the things the Holy Spirit loves to do, is go, open your eyes. Right? <laughs> and you go, whoa! I think that's what eternity is going to be like. Just a lot of people going, oh, just all over the room like popcorn. Whoa! 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 Yes, over and over again. Our eyes being opened and opened. So that's what I want to pray for, is that, that our imagination would be a tool by the Holy Spirit, not a hindrance. And that your experience, whatever woundedness you specialize in, whatever Jesus you prefer, that all of that would get cleared away this morning and that as we worship that there would be a new truth in your heart about who he is. Amen. So let's, let's ask for that. Holy Spirit, we ask you to just take this imprint that we see here in Revelation that John saw of Jesus, this picture of him. Would you imprint it upon our hearts? Not just the imagery, but what the imagery means very nature and character of Christ our Messiah that you would imprint that upon our hearts and that it would disturb every false conception we have of him God that we would see him holy and perfect and pure irresistible but with his hand on our shoulder and with the church in his hand so Jesus we receive you like this right now we receive you we love you like this. We love you for who you are. We submit to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen.